Thursday, April 6th it is. Welcome to your Richie Allen radio show, live from Salford in the great northwest of the UK. Thank you for finding me. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, the author and the broadcaster and the former Democratic candidate Dean Henderson joins the program a little bit later on this hour. Can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to catching up with Dean. He published a brand new book earlier this year. We didn't get around to talking about it. We are going to talk about it and more today. Dean Henderson, this hour and an extended conversation. You can join in via the website richieallen.co.uk, live comment or tweet me at BBG Richie. BBG Richie, that's the one. Yes, approaching the bank holiday weekend, the Easter bank holiday weekend, and the weather men, the weather women, the weather boys and girls are promising a pretty balmy weekend for most of us here in in Blighty. I hope so, in any case. How are you, by the way? Is all well in your world? It is. Don't bitch to me. I've enough to complain about myself. I, uh, I won't be going out on a school night again. I don't mind telling you. I'm an old man now. Went to United versus Brentford last night, down at Old Trafford-like. It's only a 25-minute walk away from my home. With my legs. With my gangly legs. Might be about 30 minutes or 35 minutes for everybody else. Boring game. Got soaked into the skin on the way back home. Chatted with a lovely lady and her two teenage sons during the game. Otherwise, I'd have fallen asleep. So I would. That was my evening last evening. Anywho, let's um, start with Beijing. Because the French leader, Emmanuel Macron, I have to stifle an urge to giggle like a schoolgirl when I mention French leader or UK prime minister. It's a joke. We know these people don't make any decisions. They're not in charge of squat. So I do have to stifle the giggles. So, Emmanuel Macron, the Rothschild man who finds himself in the Elysee Palace, he's in Beijing today, and he has urged Xi Jinping, the Chinese Premier, to help stop Russia's war in Ukraine. He said to Xi Jinping, I know I can count on you to bring Russia to its senses. In reply, Mr. Xi said that China and France had the ability and responsibility to safeguard world peace. Emmanuel, between you and me, we can safeguard world peace, old chap. Old chum, Moscow said there was no prospects for a peaceful settlement so far uh, and its offensive would continue. Interestingly enough, Emmanuel Macron was joined in his trip to China or on his trip to China by the EU Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen. Yeah, he invited her to take part in these talks with the Chinese leadership as well as a large business delegation. And afterwards, Ursula von der Leyen had this to say to the media. Here she is. As a member of the UN Security Council, there is a big responsibility 
and we expect that China will play its role and promote a just peace, one that respects Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, one of the cornerstones of the UN Charter. I did emphasize in our talks today that I stand firmly behind President Zelensky's peace plan. What peace plan is that? I also welcomed some of the principles that have been put forward by China. This is notably the case on the issue of nuclear safety and risk reduction. And China's statement on the unacceptability of nuclear threats or the use of nuclear weapons. We also count uh, on China not to provide any military equipment directly or indirectly to Russia because we all know arming the aggressor would be against international law and it would significantly harm our relationship. Let's catch that last bit again from Ursula von der Hitler. As a member of the UN Security Council, there is a big responsibility and we expect that China will play its role and promote... Not that bit, the last bit, the very last bit, excuse me, dear, dear listener. Let's hear the last bit. ...directly or indirectly to Russia, because we all know arming the aggressor would be against international law, and it would significantly harm our relationship. Arming the aggressor is against international law, and it would harm our relationship, said Ursula von der Leyen. This didn't... This didn't provoke a hysterical reaction from the Chinese delegation. It should have done. It didn't, of course, because they're not in charge of anything either. But they should have laughed out loud at that because it's only four or five months ago that the German government decided to approve the export of arms to the United Arab Emirates and to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah. And that was the German government. And EU export uh, licences... Uh, basically permit sale of arms to Saudi Arabia, including German industry-produced arms for certain planes like the Eurofighter Typhoon and the Panavia Tornado. These are jets that are given to Saudi Arabia and they are in turn used to bomb Yemen back to the Stone Age. You just can't make this stuff up, can you? Seven minutes past the hour, the Richie Allen Show Thursday's edition. Now, you know that French people have taken to the streets of Paris and other cities in the country over plans to reform the pension system being forced through by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, without parliamentary approval. It's a dictatorship, right? They want to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. The French are not having it. Unions, union workers, unionised workers and lots of other people out on the streets protesting this for the last couple of weeks. And the UK media seems to be kind of obsessed with it. Like, and I find this strange. And I'll tell you why I find it strange in a moment. Here's a flavour of UK media coverage of it today, BBC and Sky. I'm not sure in which order. Quickly back to Paris. Uh, just a quick snapshot to show you what is uh, happening there. If you're just joining us on BBC News, the 11th day of mass protests, large numbers on the streets, large number of uh, police also on the streets. We've seen a, a few skirmishes, but the standoff between government and protesters continues over that uh, change to 
the pension aid. So we'll return uh, back to Paris in the next uh, little while, but uh, those some of the pictures coming into us. So, so they're jumping in and out of it all day long. Here's Sky then. Let's take you back to Paris. This is the scene uh, live on the streets there. Uh, apologies, the camera work a little bit shaky there, but there is a lot going on. Uh, as you can see, riot police moving in. This is the 11th nationwide day of protests since the start of the year, and things have been getting increasingly fraught there uh, as we've been watching these scenes here at Sky News. Uh, thousands of protesters, not just on the streets of Paris, but there are protests happening nationwide. Nationwide. So the UK media obsessed with this, and I wonder about this because, now I might be totally off the mark here, but I've thought to myself, why would they should give extensive coverage to these protests happening in France? Would they not be a bit concerned that the French protests might in turn, you know, inspire, that's the word, a protest not, not only here in the UK, but, but in Ireland? You know, why would they be showing you that? Why put, put so much emphasis on that? It's interesting, but they are doing that. They're giving a lot of coverage to these protests, you know, and they're covering it in a neutral way or slightly slanting it towards supporting the protesters. Isn't that interesting? That the BBC and Sky would be neutral. There is no real condemnation of the protests and they seem to have some sympathy or empathy for the protesters. Again, why? Wouldn't they be concerned that it might inspire people here? Anyway, right. So the BBC had a woman on called Sarah or Sarah Alawan. She is a professor at the University of Toulouse and she was asked, will the protests continue to grow? Will they get bigger? French University professor Sarah Alawan. Uh well, it doesn't sound like the protests are getting uh, are being stopped anytime soon. Uh, the decision of the Constitutional Council regarding the constitutionality of the law is going to be released on the 14th of April. And until then, negotiations are failing and people are staying on the street. There is one going on right now in Toulouse, actually. In terms of those uh, protests and demonstrations uh, right across in so many different cities, you mentioned Toulouse, we're looking at pictures from Paris. Uh, of course, it, it seemed to antagonise the situation hugely when this legislation was forced through Parliament. No vote on the floor. Uh, France is waiting to find out if that was constitutionally valid, isn't it? How critical will that moment be? It will be extremely critical because regardless of the decision of the Constitutional Council, uh, it will be a decision that will affect uh, the president and its government as a whole, uh, whether the law is deemed constitutional, partially constitutional or unconstitutional. And uh, the damage I've done, really, it has been the 11th time since the government has used uh, this article of our constitution, 49.3, uh, which literally bypassed parliament and bypassed the vote uh, of the parliament. So it has affected our institutions and also the way we look at the Fifth Republic and the danger of giving too much power to the executive. Yeah, the 11th time they forced through legislation without getting prior parliamentary approval. That's interesting, isn't it? Why, she is asked by the BBC guy, why should French people get to retire so early when the rest of us carry on till we're nearly 70? Tongue is in cheeks there, because if they have their way, we'll be carrying on till we're 80. 
and then 85 and what have you. So why did the French get it so easy compared to the rest of us? Her answer was... The right to retirement is deeply embedded into French culture. It's a right that has been hardly fought for, uh, hardly earned. And you have to understand also something, because we like to compare other countries, but you have to understand when we talk about the minimum age, uh, you don't have a full pension with the legal age. When you reach the legal age, you still need to uh, contribute more if you want to, f to have a full pension. Meaning, if the pension, if the legal age is at 64, you won't have a full pension. So you need to keep working. And for certain type of jobs, like trash collectors, nurses, teachers, uh, sometimes you don't reach this age. I take the example of trash collectors. They die before reaching that age. What? Uh, so it's a reform that is perceived that is unfair to those who have extremely hard uh, job. And usually those are uh, also the people who don't have a, a high, um, uh, uh, yes. you know, uh, a high, uh, who won't have a high pension in the end. So it is an unjust reform. What did she say about the mortality rate of trash collectors in France? And for certain type of jobs, like trash collectors, nurses, teachers, uh, sometimes you don't reach this age. I take the example of trash collectors, they die before reaching that age. <laughs> I think she meant obviously some, some of them, but it just tickled me that trash collectors die before reaching 62. They just do. Yes, wheelie bins are deadly. Death traps wheelie bins. We lost a guy last week who was run over by a non-recyclable waste bin he was taking to the dumpster truck. He fell under the wheels of his own wheelie bin. 62. Deadly, deadly profession there. Even teachers. Some teachers don't reach retirement age. She said the pupils must be monstrous in France. I have a French missus, I can believe that. 14 minutes past the hour. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. With me, Richie Allen. Let's stay with France for a moment. Migrant boats, dangerous rickety things, rubber dinghies and stuff. You have gangs, you know, criminal gangs allegedly facilitating migrants, a lot of economic migrants, attempting to cross the channel in small boats. Now, this ridiculous UK government says it will deal with this by sending people who arrive here illegally to Rwanda on a plane. It's now begun to talk about putting them on barges um, a few metres off UK coastlines and stuff. If you've been following this, we'll put them on barges. We, we, we've got these barges. We've got them kitted out. We've got showers and ensuite and we've got pool tables and stuff. And we'll put the illegal migrants while we process their claims for asylum. We'll put them on the barges. That's what we'll do. This is pure nonsense, right? Henry Smith is a is a Conservative Party MP and he was on Talk TV with Ian Collins today. And Ian Collins said, you're just being laughed at here, aren't you, by migrants because 400 arrived yesterday. That's a village, isn't it? That's a village. That's um, that's Moon Coin in Kilkenny, 400, is it? That's Kilmacow. Kilmacow is a real village, by the way, in Kilkenny. Kilmacow, K-I-L-M-A-C-O-W. Very exotic names in Ireland, Kilmacow. Yeah, that's a village. So a village arrived yesterday and they're going to put them on barges. So Henry Smith, the Conservative Party MP, talked to Ian Collins on Talk TV. And just to bring this right up to date, Henry, this news has just broken. More than 400 people crossed the channel in what yesterday, just in one day, 400. And, and so they will keep coming, particularly as the weather improves as well. Do you think um, a barge is going to put them off? Love that. Do you think a barge will put them off? Do you think they'll be standing on the beaches of Calais? Do you know, I'm looking forward to getting to the UK now. Uh, well, they're going to put you in a barge. On a barge. 
best not then. Best go back to wherever. Do you think a barge will put them off, Henry Smith? Look, I, I think it helps. Um, I think it, <laughs> it helps. It's better than putting people up in expensive um, hotels. But you're right, given the sheer numbers. Yeah, I mean that would uh, fill the that, barge, that, right? That, Those four hundred. Yeah, that, 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 that's that, the barge, that barge done. Be filled, filled up in, in in a day and a half. Yeah, a day and a half. So the migrants who arrived yesterday will fill one and a half. No, no, will fill a barge in a day and a half. Which brings us back to where we began the conversation. What can the government really do next in order to firstly sort out the backlog? Because bearing in mind Rwanda's been announced, the barge was already announced, and still 400 people came across the channel. Well, we need to stop. They're laughing uh, at your government, Henry, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it's Henry. They are. They're laughing at us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely, they're laughing at us over there in France. Look at those idiots with their barges and their threats about Rwanda. We're coming anyway. I think that's the case. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, that's not what I want to see. I, I'm concerned about the security um, and the well-being of this country. And we don't know the backgrounds of people who are entering this country. Yeah, we don't know much about your background either, Henry Smith. Anyway, it's uh, 17 minutes past five Thursdays. Richie Allen show with me. Richie Allen, Dean Henderson will be on with me shortly. God, I've been speaking with Dean a long time on my programmes. First met him when I was doing radio in Spain. Wonderful stuff. Prolific writer. Great author. We're going to be talking about ancient civilizations. We're going to be talking about bloodlines. Dean has written this book, and one of the themes of the book is how we, as as a civilization, as people, humanity, as energetic beings, we have been in, induced into a state of consciousness where we have forgotten where we came from and what we once were. And most of what happens in the media today, most of what happens in the world today, the events that consume us, the events we analyse and talk about incessantly, these are things that happen to prevent to keep us from understanding who we really are and he talks about the royal families of the world and how all of them are connected to this ancient bloodline it's um, really interesting we'll chat with Dean shortly on the Richie Allen show if you'd like to comment on that during the program go to my website and choose live comment speaking of bloodlines the jug-eared Muppet who is about to become the King of England otherwise known as Charles III and his wife, Camilla, the horsey-faced thingamajig that um, will be known as Queen, apparently. They, they, they've been in the news today, but it's about slavery. And it's about acknowledging the history of royalty in this country and the slave trade. And they have agreed to participate in not, a, not some sort of a study. Yeah, a kind of an investigation that's going to happen in the next three years. Here is BBC News 24. Well, meanwhile, Buckingham Palace says it is cooperating with an independent study into links between the British monarchy and the slave trade in the 17th and 18th centuries. Let's talk to our royal correspondent, Nicholas Witchell, who's with me now. Um, Nick, what is the significance of this? He must be having the time of his life, Nicholas Witchell. Remember, he's the red-haired guy who's been following the royal family for the BBC for, I think, 142 years. And he was the guy who followed them on a skiing trip about 12, 13, 14 years ago. And Charles was hot-miked, wasn't he, but didn't realise it. And Charles said, I really cannot bear 
Zatman or something to, to that effect. I really hate him. Poor old Nicholas Witchell. And he's still on that duty. He must be properly hated at the BBC, Nicholas Witchell. You're given the job of following the royal family. The guy you're following says on an open microphone how much he hates you, the presenter, or the reporter, excuse me, and you're still doing that job nearly 15 years later. Somebody doesn't like Nicholas Witchell. Anyway, what's going on with this study and the royal family's cooperation? Both the King and the Prince of Wales have expressed their personal sorrow at the suffering caused by the slave trade. They, they couldn't give a shit, Nicholas. They know, I think, that this is an issue that they absolutely must address. So this independent study will be carried out by a historian, a PhD student at the University of Manchester. She Bet you she's black. She will work with the historic royal palaces, the royal collection, and have complete access to the royal archives, which is the important thing. Now, uh, of course, she'll be given full access to the royal archives. When he when he said that, he should have winked. I mean, his career is nearly over anyway. He should just wink every time he tells a lie. She will have complete access, wink, to the complete ro or to the. Total Royal Archive, sure she will, Nicholas, of course she will. It will focus on the reigns of William III, George III and William IV. And of course that was at a time when many leading figures in British society had shareholdings in slave trading companies and it's thought that some of those British monarchs may have, have heard that. Now, King Charles is on record as having said that he wants to deepen his knowledge about what really happened, so this inquiry will be a step towards that. It will take uh, three years to complete. It will be finished in 2026. He might be dead by then, a King Charles III. Yeah, it'd be nice if they opened an inquiry into the royal family's penchant. Do you love that word, that French word, penchant? The royal family's penchant for little children. That might be a good... I wonder would he be so enthusiastic then, Charles, and, and his son... William, yeah, it is exactly 22 minutes past the hour. To all the listeners who have become loyal customers of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last year, we would like to say a big thank you. Because of your continued support, we have been able to introduce our second product. This unique supplement is formulated specifically to reduce pain caused by joint inflammation. Our organic turmeric-based supplement contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract which massively increases its bioavailability and thereby reaching the inflamed area faster. If you are suffering from joint pain, go to NutraHealth365.com for specific details on how our joint health supplement can help give you relief. That's NutraHealth365.com with free tract delivery. You're listening to the saviour of independent media, Richie Allen. And I'm broadcasting on FabRadioInternational.com, FabRadio2, my own website, RichieAllen.co.uk, and TuneIn.com, the TuneIn app, 23 minutes past five. Yeah, United won 1-0 last night, by the way. I didn't tell you the score. It was the most boring game of football I ever sat through in my life. And I've been to see United at Old Trafford... Let's be honest, let's not exaggerate. How many times have I been to Old Trafford over the years? Probably a hundred. Maybe a little bit more. I used to travel regularly from Waterford when I was working in radio in Waterford. I would take regular midweek trips over. Coach trip or fly in. And then we've lived in Manchester, you know, many years, twice. And I went to, to many, many, many home games. But that was the worst experience I ever had. It was dreadful. And then as I left, the heavens opened. And I walked and got soaked into the skin. Came home and had a lovely whiskey, though. Neighbour of mine, lovely neighbour of mine, Stu and Kate, they bought me a lovely bottle of whiskey. 
I swapped them a bottle of whiskey for a lawnmower that I don't use because I'm a lazy bastard. I can't even say it. It's so wrong. I bought a lawnmower to mow my lawn, but I don't do that. I'm the BBG. I'm famous. Nobody famous mows their own lawn. So the lawnmower was gathering dust in the shed, which is basically dust and cobwebs. It's full of tools that, that I just will never use, ever. Rakes and stuff and shovels. I had nothing to do with me. It's all in there. And Stuart's lawnmower broke down and he said, you know, can I give you some money for the lawnmower? And it, it had been there just gathering dust for a year. And I just take the bloody thing. I, you know, I don't want anything. But he got me a lovely bottle of single malt scotch. That's the barter system alive and well in Salford. I, I was delighted. So it cheered me up no end when I returned back to the house last night, soaked into the skin with the dogs jumping all over me. I'll have a single malt scotch. No water, no nothing. Drink it the way it was meant to be drunk. 25 minutes past the hour. Before we welcome Dean Henderson back to the Richie Allen Show, one more story. Two stories, in fact. Hang on, let me bring my hot mail up. Ding, diddling, 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 ding, 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 diddling, 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 ding, ding. Right, so we had Jana London on yesterday. Lovely woman, born in Maine, in the in the US, Eastern Time in Maine. She's been living in Meath for some years, and she's spearheading a campaign to have a book removed from libraries which isn't suitable for children at all. A sexual book, a book with graphic depictions of sex in there. Really lovely lady. She came across brilliant on the programme yesterday. And I think they had a meeting in Dublin today. But uh, since we spoke, the book has been banned from the school curriculum. The Irish school's curriculum is banned. It's been banned elsewhere too. It's been banned in the United States. Libraries have not yet banned it unanimously. But it's a little victory for, I think, very, very many good Irish men and women who want to protect children, to protect their right to have a childhood that's pretty simple and fun, where they don't have to consider sexuality and stuff like that. So thanks to Ronan for sending me that. That sexual book will be removed from student sex education resource materials. I think it's called The the, the Gay Book or something like that. This book is gay. I think this book is gay. But while we were on air last night, The Telegraph published a story which is a bit sad. Drag queens should be, should be, mind, invited into schools to make them more inclusive. Oh, holy Jesus. According to who? According to the biggest teaching union in this country. Members of the National Education Union voted to support LGBT plus initiatives, including Drag Queen Storytime, where LGBT plus authors will be brought into schools to speak if they get their way. These activities apparently would help to challenge the heteronormative culture and curriculum that dominates education. The heteronormative culture and curriculum that dominates education. I'd love to fucking strangle some of these fucking idiots behind some of these ideas. Do you know why there is a heteronormative culture in the UK? Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why? Because most of the people in this country are heterosexual, that's why. A massive 90% or more people in this country are heterosexual. Therefore, it stands to reason that our culture would be hetero-fucking-normative. I'm an Irishman, by the way. I can insert the word fucking in between, in, in, in any word. In any word, in any dictionary. Dean Henderson is next on The Richie Allen Show. You made a fool of me. This is Jeff Lynn's ELO. 
It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. ELO and Evil Woman on the Richie Allen Show. It's exactly 29 minutes to the top of the hour. My great friend, the thespian extraordinaire, the journalist, the broadcaster, Jean Ann Crowley, tells me she keeps mixing up Jeff Lynn and Jeff Beck. I don't know how you do that. There's no similarity there whatsoever. That's a sign of old age, I think. That's what I said to her anyway. Tongue in cheek, of course. I must remember to Google your so old jokes. Start firing them at my friend. Hey, listen, let's just welcome back to the programme. It's been a while since he was on. Since he was on, actually, last, a lot has happened. Queen Elizabeth II died. Um, replaced, of course, by her son, King Charles III. We'll talk about this with uh, Dean. Dean is a prolific writer, broadcaster, former Democratic candidate. His books are terrific. I, I don't plug that which I don't like. Therefore, I do not plug very much. And I've told you over the years, not that I need to do that, but I've checked the man out if you haven't checked him out before. Since we last spoke, he's published a new book. It's called Royal Bloodline Wetico and the Great Remembering. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend Dean Henderson. Welcome back, Dean. How are you? Hey, great to be back, Richie. How are you doing? I'm not too shabby at all. A lot has happened since we spoke last. So let's start with that because um, it took me an age to find the book. You're one of the few authors who takes the time to make sure that I get the book in advance so I can read it, which I'm forever grateful for. But um, over the weekend, it took me a while to, to locate the bloody email. It would have been quicker to email you to ask you to resend it. But I found it and it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, it's shocking at times and I wanted to talk about, because you reference, um, of course, the, the, in the introduction you referenced the, the funeral and the coverage of the funeral of Elizabeth II and how you kind of saw that and the impact it had on you. Do you want to talk about that? What, what did it mean, all of that, when, when she passed away? I mean, the coverage was, I, I expected the UK media to give it obviously plenty of coverage. What I did not expect was for the media in this country to basically drop everything for nearly two weeks and cover nothing else but this. And I know it got an enormous amount of coverage in your country too, didn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, I would I would expect that, you know, maybe in Britain, yeah, it would be kind of a bigger deal. But I mean, because they're officially still the head of state. But to see that kind of coverage in the U.S. was that was probably a more disturbing part to me. And so I just use it as the introduction to the book, Death of a Monarch, Birth of a Revolution. And, you know, just talking about how the whole thing was just kind of a ritual, you know, the, the whole reason they just had to do that was you know there's constant photos of the crown and the just all the the instruments of power you know so these are like the you know so they're all about metaphors and they're all about symbolism right and imagery yeah. and it was like putting trying to put people into a trance you know but i did learn some interesting things uh throughout that period one of the things was on cnn this royal biographer guy was on there and just this you know i don't know where he's from burke's period or something and he and he's he, he said, oh, yeah, all, all the royal families are related, you know, and it kind of confirmed what I, uh, you know, always suspected, but didn't really know. Some people talk about, you know, there's 13 bloodline families and yeah. Fritz Springmeier says there's seven. And but, you know, that's what's amazing is that, you know, out of their own media, out of their own uh, official mouthpiece, they just said that yeah, there's one royal family. There's one bloodline, in other words. So. So yeah, but it uh, it's just uh, 
Hang on a second, hang on. You're being very modest there because when you began doing what it is you do, writing your books and broadcasting, you basically bet the farm on that being true. Let's be honest about it. You know, and there would have been people in the independent media who would have called you, you know, silly names. They would have criticised you and said, oh, you're a shill and this is truth or stuff. It wasn't truth or stuff and it's absolutely bang on the money. What, so well done. Why do you think that a CNN journalist is letting the cat out of the bag and basically saying that all of these royal families in the world are blood connected? Why do you think they'd risk that or was that just a slip? Yeah, I don't know. I, I tend to think it was probably a slip and somebody admonished him later. But, yeah. you know, it could be part, you know, how they are. They're, they're kind of coming out of the closet. I even talk about that in my book. It's like a coming out party for the bloodline. And so, you know, you're seeing them openly, uh, you know, doing things that that uh, in front right in front of us. And I think the amazing thing is that people still can't see it. You know, a lot of people. And um but yeah, I think it's just always an instinct with me. And then there was a lot of anecdotal, you know, things. And so, yeah, that's what this book's about. It's just this, you know, it's the Anunnaki bloodline, in, in my estimation, that arrived here in Samaria 8,500 years ago and subjugated the planet. And it's still subjugating the planet. And it's just that simple. And the book just kind of goes, it's a timeline. It goes through, you know, where they move their empires from place to place because it's all one continuous empire. It's not you know, the British Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, the Egyptian pharaohs, it's one continuous empire, the Babylonians, it's one continuous empire by the same bloodline. That's the thing. And then it, but I think more importantly, like you pointed out in your introduction, I appreciate it. Um, you know, the, the more important part of the book is just the ideas that came from these demented people. And that word, Watiko, it, it's a Cree word and it, and it means cannibal, but it's kind of broader than cannibal. It, means somebody that eats elite not just your flesh but your soul your energy and your energy and just uh always have to be doing the first strike mentality i think it's the best way to like chapter 11 it's called first strike with tico and it's like where do we get this idea that we have to strike first you know well it's because of fear and it's because of our fear of nature and our fear of our own nature and our fear of every damn thing because this is, this is the constant stream of information coming from the crown whether it's hiding behind the catholic church or the, the then later the Lutheran Church and now the Evangelical Church or whether it's hiding behind science through the Royal Society or whether it's hiding behind what I think is the current manifestation which is the woke movement which is not the left it's a misnomer it's just not anything left or progressive or liberal about this woke movement it keeps the conversation off class and that's what they want it keeps the conversation off of criticizing capitalism criticizing the bloodline criticizing the monarchy criticizing the powers that be and so they divide people along racial lines and transgender lines, as many pronouns as you can come up with, the more the better, because it's just more ways to divide people, right? So so this is their current manifestation. Um, but anyway, it's just, uh, yeah, that's what it's about. And I uh, really learned a lot writing it, uh, which is also, always nice, you know, to be an old dude and still be able to learn. <laughs> I, don't think you're old. <laughs> I don't think you're old at all. You're a brilliant researcher, which um, is obviously... A great help to you when you come to write a book like this. We're talking about Royal Bloodline, Royal Bloodline with Tico and the Great Remembering by our pal Dean Henderson. Uh, I recommend you go and buy it, folks. First of all, because it's important. Second of all, um, we got to keep guys like Dean writing books like this and, and putting this information in front of people to give them a chance to, to kind of have a look at it. When we first met, it was, I think it was back around about 2011. I was doing, um, coming to the end of doing a radio show in Spain 
and you were explaining to me how how at some stage in the Middle Age, not the Middle Ages, in in the 11th or 12th centuries, I'm going to butcher this so you can correct me, but you, maybe in the time of King John maybe, they realised, and they, maybe they saw what was happening in France, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, by they, the royal families, the bloodlines, they kind of realised that the, the game was up and people were onto them. And they devised constitutional monarchy idea, didn't they? This idea that they could fool the people by giving the people lots of different politicians to vote for, for and they and they would they would seemingly kind of step back and take a more ceremonial role, but that was um, untrue. The d- democracy was the Trojan horse. That that's exactly what you told me, wasn't it? More or less. Yeah, more or less, and um, you know, there's it, it was just a long process where. Um, you know, it's interesting in your introduction, you talk about this news coming out today that King Charles III is, you know, agreed to, what do you say, uh, educate himself on slavery? On slavery, yeah. Something over there is funny. <laughs> and, uh, oh, it's just interesting timing, right? Because, you know, here we are talking about, you wonder if they got tipped off. I'm like, oh, we better <laughs> cover our ass today. But they, look, I mean, the Royal Africa Company was the biggest slaving uh, company in history, and it was almost entirely owned well, it was entirely owned by the British Crown. I mean, King James II was the owned most of it, and then of course you have the East India Company, um, you know, as well that would you know slip shipping slaves from Madagascar, Mozambique to Indonesia to their plantations over there. And so, you know, they make it sound like they had this part in it, but then it was other people. But yeah, they they signed the Mag- Magna Carta. That was probably the initial. You know, and I think in my book, I expose it as kind of a, a fraud because, it, you know, they they said, well, you know, we'll cut this deal with the, you know, it wasn't with the commoners, but, it, you know, at least it was with the aristocracy or the landowning class or whatever. And that, you know, every, you know, the, the monarchy would sort of fade into oblivion, but it's just a lie. It's another thing to hide behind. And then they just, you know, the city of London Corporation, which mysteriously doesn't have papers anymore to its founding, you know, they just don't exist. And, you know, you get Wikipedia that it's, I guess it's just common knowledge. They just don't have paperwork for when it started. But my suspicion is that, I mean, I know Londinium was the name of London back under the Holy Roman Empire and one, you know, in the first century AD. So it's always played a role in the, you know, even, even in the Holy Roman Empire. And one of the interesting things about this book is just the continuity and how the, you know, Egyptian pharaohs wind down and within seven years, the, you know, Julius Caesar has an affair with Cleopatra, the last pharaoh, the only one to ever bother to speak Egyptian because they were just colonizers with coneheads that came from, you know, Samaria and yeah. Anunnaki. They went to Babylon, too, from there. And, but, you know, so they had this tryst and they had a baby and it was called Caesarian, which is interesting because maybe that's, you know, who knows? Maybe that's where Caesarian comes from. Like, you know, the kids had a conehead and so, you know, they couldn't get it out. Um but anyway, then Caesar uh, confirmed, burned down the Alexandria Library. So that's confirmed that it was actually Julius Caesar that torched that. And to me, that's wiping out the genealogy of the Anunnaki bloodline and a lot of bad history about archons and about, geez, a lot of things. That just slavery. I mean, just this history. Ever since they've been here, they just have enslaved people. And so, and then, and then the continuity, you know, I think the, the Holy Roman Empire officially, you know, ended 1862. And it was like, I think it was nine years either side of when the British Empire started. And so, 
it's that's the that's the whole thing is it's just been this cabal and they've just moved around wherever you know they got kicked out of them. I, you know i didn't know there was a huge uprising in cairo against the pharaohs and that's really why it, you know it, they had to go i didn't know there was a huge protest in the city of london in the 13th 14th century they burned down bridges and yeah people were yeah. arrested and uh, you know and that's that's the part of course the history they leave out is the resistance because nobody's ever liked these people wherever they've gone, but, but they've got more to where they're, they're more refined and they're more sophisticated and the propaganda is more effective. And, and, and that's the thing. And Edward Bernay and, you know, all that stuff, MK ultra project Monarch, interesting name, right? That was the key project in MK ultra was called project Monarch. And I mean, my estimation right now, Richie is this whole world is under this kind of trans MK ultra project Monarch influence right now. Um, I'm not the whole world, not me and you, not a bunch of people, but I mean a lot of people and, and they don't know it. And if you see, it's just like a demon. If you know a demon's landed on, you can get rid of it. If you don't acknowledge it and don't recognize it, it'll stay. But once you shine a light on it, just like the Rothschilds or the Anunnaki bloodline, um, they run away. They're scared. They don't like the truth. They hate the truth. So they've lived on a diet of steady lies throughout history. And they started the enlightenment, for example, as this great thing against you know, religion, but it was all it was, was they had a fallen out, the Templars did with the Catholic Church. And, you know, they had to, all of a sudden they backed Martin Luther. And also Martin Luther said, you didn't have to be a good person. You could kind of be a shithill and still go to heaven as long as you profess Jesus as your savior, which came out of the Council of Nicaea, um, oh, you know, overseen by Constantine the Great back in 200 AD. And they changed that to where Jesus all of a sudden was this Messiah and everybody else was just, you know, nothing, I guess. And so they created this cult out of Jesus, which he never wanted. He always said, you know, don't follow me several times as a cycles. You know, you're, it's up to you. You know, everybody has to pull their weight. Everybody has to be a messiah or whatever. I mean, everybody has to do good. And so that was a huge thing. And then they made Easter something where we celebrate, which is interesting because it's, you know, they killed Jesus. The Illuminati royal bloodline killed Jesus and we're supposed to celebrate it. And then all this hogwash about how he was resurrected as a Merovingian, they're related to him, and whatever, you know, which is what, you know, the angels and demons and all that Dan Brown stuff was trying to tell people. And that was just all propaganda. So, yeah, now they're hiding behind science. And we've seen the pinnacle of that now with Fauci and this cult of science and these white coats marching out and just telling us what to do and unelected officials. And um, so, yeah, it, it's just and governments, uh, governments now, governments preparing to hand over control to the World Health Organization. Um, you know, if if we have a pandemic or something, a, a global yeah. health emergency, the sovereign governments won't, well, we don't have sovereign governments really, but national parliaments won't decide the way forward. It'll be left to the World Health Organization. Dean Henderson is our guest. What is really good from what I've read, because I've not completed the book, but you, continuity is this big thing. Like you describe how they've survived through the ages pretty much intact, despite having periods where people did rise up against them. So I want to ask you a, a, a couple of questions. This is for listeners now who are totally brand new to this and who maybe are hearing you for the first ever time, right? So it's Dean Anderson, terrific researcher and writer, former Democratic candidate, broadcaster, live on the programme. It's coming up for 13 and a half minutes to five o'clock. He's written Royal Bloodline with Tico and the Great Remembering. It's really interesting about how, you know, the rest of us, you know, not these bloodlines, but the rest of us have been 
basically kind of induced into a kind of a coma and how we don't really have any idea we don't know any of this stuff even though it's there dean is dean particularly and and, and maybe david eichen but not many others have been able to delve into this over the years and research it it's out there i mean even mentioned wikipedia with the with the city of london and the you know the the no paperwork and all of that it's all out there so so let's go back then to I'll ask you a series of questions, just quick questions, just for about five minutes, and we'll we'll, we'll explain this to people who are sort by we I mean you, who are a little bit in the dark. So six and a half thousand BC or thereabouts, um, society or civilization was hit by the arrival of the Anunnakis. What are for people who've never heard the term before, apart from maybe in science fiction films, who or what were the Anunnaki? Sure. Well, a lot of this, I mean, all of this comes from the, you know, the Sumerian clay tablets, which people were, you know, some people were finally able to transcribe. And it's the oldest uh, language, written language that we know of. It's a cuneiform language. And these tablets talk about um, the Anunnaki coming from this planet, Nibiru, um, which they claim uh, their, their ozone layer had basically gotten shot, you know, on that planet. So they came to Earth to mine gold to seal it up using this gold flecking. And, but he talks about how, you know, the, the Sumerians were forced into agriculture. And so that's interesting because, of course, agriculture is always, you know, uh, really key to, you know, I think, like, why did people switch to agriculture? And, and so many anthropologists and have tried to figure out why, why did hunting and gathering people so work eight hours a week you know, all of a sudden want to, you know, own things and work really hard and work, you know, a lot more hours a week. And um, and so they say they were forced into it. Well, what's interesting is that about the same time, agriculture sprang up in the Indus Valley. Um, agriculture sprang up in Mexico. Agriculture sprang up in Central America, Central Asia, Africa, all at the same time, all at about 8,000 B.C. And all at the same time that these big temples were being built, like Angkor Wat, like yeah. Tikal like uh, Chichen Itza, like, you know, the pyramids, like whatever, go get Tepe or however you say that. Um, so it's interesting. So I think, I think, um, of course, I have no proof of this, but I think that the temples were built with slave labor of the regional hunting gathering people who were enslaved into agriculture in all these locations to feed the temple uh, squatters which is what they really were because they didn't do anything and then they still don't do anything. You notice. So it's, you know, they're consistent at least, but um, yeah, to feed those, uh, the temple gods. And these were the gods and they were taught that they were, you know, the, the Indians were told these were gods and they know so much. And, you know, you watch the history channel in the United States today and it's all propaganda. It's all CIA. They're all trying to tell you that these are, you know, Oh, they brought us all these gifts and all these, they're so much smarter than us is the implication. But, I mean, so, of course, that's what they're going to say. But what it really did is agriculture makes people, what, more materialistic so they can store things now. They they have this. They think they own some land. Most of them were sharecroppers and never own anything. But, you know, all of a sudden you're in competition with your neighbor to grow a better crop or, you know, store things, store food. All of a sudden nature is your enemy because hawks attack your chickens and coyotes attack your sheep. And, you know, so really this was the beginning of setting man against nature. And I think that's a really important part of this book because out of that grows that fear, which I was talking about, the Swatiko, where you're so scared you have to 
you know, use the example in the book, uh, you know, about this Alaskan, um, it was a hunter, it was just, you know, he's like a, you know, colonist, basically white guy. And he just goes in and just this bear rears up and 50 yards down the trail. And this is the Inuit telling the story. Um, and he just blows the bear away, you know, and how, you know, the Inuit way, of course, would just be to talk to the bear, ask if you could pass, tell him you'll share some berries with it. And that always works. And they just do it. Another example of an Inuit man who claims that he lived out, you know, he got lost and hunting for caribou and he got lost and a bad weather came and he laid with a group of gray fox for, he says, a week and it kept him warm. And then he got up and he said he's ever since then he had good hunting of the gray fox, good trapping of the gray fox, which he used for clothes. So it's just like, this is their relationship. It's all about relationships. It, you know, the reality that we live in is all about relationships and it's all about reciprocity. It's not about this linear version of reality that just goes streaming forward and, you know, thinking that you're helping yourself when you're actually hurting yourself because the, the nature of reality is a sacred hoop. It's a circle. So if the snake's too greedy, it eats its own tail. That's the Aurora Boris, right? If you're a good person and you walk through life um, being a nice person, you'll have instant karma every step of the way and your life will be easy. And this is the basic, uh, the stupidity of this Royal Society, Anunnaki, uh, Bloodline, City of London crowd. They don't understand that. They're so scared. They must have had traumatic experiences in their other galaxy where they were treated badly, uh, went to war. Uh, who knows? Don't, don't know. The, you know I can't this explain is, what makes them this way, okay? But This is um, good, Dean. This is good because you're answering questions that I was going to ask you. So I'll do a very quick recap. I said we'd make these questions quick. So it's believed tr through the Sumerian tablets that 8,000 BC, not 6,500, like I said, because I can't add up because I'm an idiot, but 8,000 um, BC, you had... No, no, you're right, you're right. It's 8,500 years ago, so it's about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, have, you have society, and um, the Earth is effectively visited by, by an alien race known as the Anunnaki, which claims to have serious problems with its own planet, that its own planet might be in mortal danger. And um, it says it needs gold, it needs gold um, dust or gold shavings or, or whatever. And it, it's obviously a, a more advanced civilization than the Sumerians. And they basically put the Sumerians to work for them. And this is where agriculture came from. This is really interesting, this, this notion that prior to this, People, most of their time was leisure time, was making families, was building families, hunting what you needed and only what you needed and taking from nature what you needed and, and only what you needed until this happened. And I'm fascinated by this because I read this summer before. Um, in fact, I might have heard this on, on the BBC, amazingly, about how, how it is kind of strange that in a very ancient time when we seemingly didn't have airplanes, we didn't have great steamships, how agriculture could begin happening all over the world. This is incredibly strange and, and hard to explain, yeah. but it did do. And until you wrote about this and spoke to me about it, I would have never considered the idea that, you know, growing stuff in the soil and taking from the earth like that, you know, was, was could ever be kind of construed as a negative thing. 
But if it is to kind of break a reality or to break a social system and to kind of get people used to working for somebody else and having to work to be given a living, to earn a living, you know, to earn your living, whereas previously you didn't have to do that, you know, you were independent. That is just absolutely fascinating. Is there any evidence that the Sumerians rebelled against this or resisted against it? Or is it, as you said, they really did see these people as gods, as um, spiritual beings, and they were just acquiescent? Is that how it worked? Yeah, I don't really know either direction if there's any evidence of, of, of either of those things. I don't really talk about them in great terms on the tablets, but then there's no talk about any sort of rebellion, you know, either. But but the thing is, like, one of the interesting things that, that I found out is that, you know, the first king in the, let's just say the, I don't know, probably have to say like the post-flood era, I guess, because there's probably, there may have been kings before that, but first king in the, since that time is this King Sargon, and he, and he was in Samaria. And um, so, and he conquered all of southern Mesopotamia, parts of Iran, Syria, Turkey, um, he spoke this Semitic language. This is something really interesting. Um, it was Akkadian, not Sumerian, and they call it Akkadian. And the rise of these Semitic languages has always been really hard to explain because Semitic is just a family of languages. It has nothing to do with the Jewish religion really at all. It just used to usually describe a group of people in a certain region who speak this certain category of languages. But the interesting part of the when when these Akkadians started to speak is that the Sumerians couldn't understand them, and a lot of people couldn't understand them, and so they they use that language to to trick people, and so you know it's the same like it's the same way they use kind of Zionism. You know if you if you you know if you criticize Zionism, oh you're an anti-Semitic or you're you know anti-Jewish or whatever. But yeah. it has nothing to do with Judaism. Zionism is also a word that comes from the transliteration of the word scion, S-C-I-O-N, and it means to graft. And so to me, the whole thing is, is the, the Zionist project is to graft the Anunnaki bloodline onto humans or with humans through the tribe of Dan, the Canaanites, and just this, this succession of, you know, because the tribe of Dan was part of this bloodline. Mount Zion was, you know, big in it, um, very important to it. The Canaanites were part of it. Um, a lot of the Hittites, um, were part of it. There was different bunches, but they, people couldn't understand them. And so, you know, then you go to this, they started using Yiddish as like a trade route language. And again, to trick people. And so, you know, Yiddish isn't the, you know, he, traditional Jewish language or nothing. It just kind of came out of nowhere too. And they use that on the Silk Road because the, the Rothschilds, who were at that time Bacharats, this was before they were Bowers, they were Bacharats. Something else new I found out. And they were trading with the Li family in China, which is, you know, the Tang dynasty, one of the bloodlines, again, because they spread out everywhere. They're not just white Europeans, you know, these kings and queens. There's royalty. They're not just white Europeans. Thailand has a king. You know, there's a lot of countries that have kings. And so they, they were using Yiddish as like a trade language. And, of course, yeah, they were trading slaves. They were trading a lot of, you know, bad things, of course. But... um. Yeah, so it's it's just it's just interesting how the Semitic this word Semitic you know gets used against people. So you know, if you're anti-Semitic, actually you're probably against this bloodline that's trying to conquer the world with deception, and it has again it has nothing to do with Jewish people. Yeah, just like Zionism has nothing to do with Jewish people. Don't so you it's, mean it's amazing that we've fallen for that? Fallen you know? for that? Yeah. Don't you mean conquered? We'll talk about that in a moment. Conquered because I think 
we 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 remain conquered. I think now you'll you'll rise up against that because you'll say, "Well, I'm not Richie." You'll say, "I know. I I'm 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 aware of what's going on, and I I don't I I I know to an extent." Um, I mean, this is new to me. This is stuff I, I I'm absolutely when I say fascinated by, I really am. But it's stuff I I'm not familiar with on, until you release a book. You know, I've read your books over the years, David. It's really only you and David, really. Um, we're talking about Dean Henderson's book, Royal Bloodline with Tico and the Great Remembering. One thing that's been said to me by somebody on social media is that um, it didn't sound like the most thrilling of life cycles, you know, the Sumerians before the arrival of the Anunnaki. I mean, do we know anything about them? I mean, if all they were doing was, um, you know, hunting and gathering, what else would they have done? And maybe that's down to my, I suppose, the suppression of us, the suppression of people for centuries and millennia, that we can't imagine life without having to do things, Dean, without having to be somewhere. But people are saying to me, Richie, it sounds like, what, what, what were they doing? Uh, you know, apart from, you catch a deer, you catch a seal, you fish. What else were they doing, do we know? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting when you, you know, because Jill and I, we, 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 we did farm for, I mean, 30 years. I was born on a cattle ranch, yeah, you know, yeah. pigs, sheep, everything. We had everything. We had a, you know, what, what they called just a, you know, well, the old days in the old days that's what everybody had everybody had a little bit of everything so it was diverse and it was and now it's just corn soybeans and rich guys with big tractors that cost 200 200 grand so yeah. there's no agriculture left it's just agribusiness but but you know what what ends up happening okay you butcher that deer well then what happened okay well then the woman has to go over and start you know peeling the hide off and get to tan the hide and the man has to start butchering and i mean there's so much that goes into that then and then you know after they're done with that they probably go jump in the river, clean up, and play some stick. They, they played a lot of games. I mean, the Lakota. Well, I I, I come, you know, from Lakota country and, and yeah. the Northern Plains, South Dakota, right? And um, we're back here. We've been back here four years. It's been awesome. But they they didn't know any of this till 1850, and that's what's amazing. Like, yes, what did these people do, or wasn't it hard? But you know, then I guess if it's so much better being a farmer, why didn't the Lakota? you know, become farmers. I mean, not that they didn't plant, they did plant, but they'd move on and they'd plant somewhere else, which is way better for the soil, by the way, too, yeah. because you end up hammering your soil. I learned, you know, I mean, every farmer learns that if you plant over and over every year, your soil gets hacked and you got to add nutrients. And they just solved that by moving on and uh, gardening in different places, usually along the Missouri River, you know, because it's really good soil. They moved around, but, you're saying. So the Lakota it, moved around. Can I, look, I hate it, to do this, but you said something very interesting. I've got to go back to it. So you're saying that in the mid-19th century, the Lakota became aware of these bloodlines. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, they they had they finally had contact with, right. with colonists and with Custer and with, you know, um, yeah, with this with Tico mentality. They were shocked. I mean, they, you know, they were like, how can people be like this? Of course, they had started to hear stuff from the East Coast Indians, I'm sure, about there was these crazy people showed up and you know, beware of them. And that's why they became more, you know, they were more suspicious than the East coast tribes for sure. But, but that's what to me is so amazing. They, 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 you know, like take the Bible, for example, I mean, the Lakota, it doesn't mean anything to the Lakota. I mean, they, they didn't, you know, none of this stuff happened here. I mean, it wasn't, the aliens didn't come down here and enslave people. And, you know, they did in a lot of parts of the world, they didn't do it here. And, and so probably they have the latest contact 
outside of, you know, the really remote Amazon tribes and maybe there's some in Borneo, Sumatra, but I would say Lakota and probably you have the latest contact. So to me, it's one of the reasons they have the most pure ideology about things and then more clear about everything um, than a lot of, you know, they just seem really clear about things to and me. you know and Dean, I learned so much from them I mean most of what I know and you know this is amazing but, because because looking looking at the book beginning to read the book so obviously then I start looking at Lakota because I've obviously heard of the Lakota tribe you've mentioned them on shows with me over the years and I've never had the time to look into them but what mm. you said there rings true to me from what I can understand through my own research they had a life that was completely idyllic these people yeah idyllic yeah and they didn't even have to, you know, the one of the myths about, the, you know, the Plains Indians is that they survived hunting buffaloes, and that's they always did. Well, that's not even true. They only started hunting buffaloes when they were forced to become more mobile because the settlers were coming in, and that's when they started hunting really just solely buffaloes. They didn't farm anymore. They didn't garden anymore. Um, they had roads. There was roads through here already. I mean, most of your U.S. interstates and major highways are built on Indian roads. They don't tell you that. You know, they actually had very a lot of advancements, and and I mean, they were, you know, in some ways much more scientific, I'd say, than anything that's come out of the Royal Society. But, you know, and, and they're at odds with just about everything they believe, starting with just the nature of reality, you know, and and this and this is where they understand reciprocity. They understand that, you know, you have to pray to the buffalo after you run them over the cliff, you know, which is really brutal, but it has to be done to get the meat, okay, and and but they pray to it before after. You thank it. They consider the buffalo higher spiritually than humans. You know, the Tatanka, because it gives its life for you, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I've started to understand reality that way too. Deer, to me, are higher than me because they just, that seems to be they're just food for everything. Wow, that just blows my mind, man. I got an experience you know? of that years ago. The missus and myself, we lived in Spain. Mm -hmm. We lived in southern Spain, so we took a ferry to Tangiers. So we had a lovely time in Tangiers, um, wonderful. And then we went south. We went down, we, we went through some villages where very, virtually no farming because of the terrain, right? And we ended up in Fez. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. I saw a village where, these are Muslim people, obviously, but they could be Native American people. They, yeah, they could be the Lakota. Yeah. Everybody yeah. in this village, and this wasn't tourist stuff. This is way away. This is this this is how people live. Everybody yeah. in the village did something for the village. Nice. Somebody made yeah, the bread. Yeah, they're always busy, right? They're Amazing. always busy, right? They Amazing. Never stop. Yeah. I mean, their houses are some of the cleanest. Yeah, and 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 me too. Over, and I've never been to Morocco. I'd love to go to Fez. I've heard really good things about that. Yeah. But, but I've seen that too. So many other places, different tribes, and they could be Lakota. They could just all be, this, you know, because they do things kind of the same. They're happy, um, and they're busy. They're just always busy. So it's amazing. We, um, I don't know. We we've just we're so separate from nature that we don't have to go through the processes, you know, of killing and eating and you know, mainly food. Um, so we just go to the store and then we nuke it for 30 seconds and then we're bored and we got to turn on the tv or whatever yeah or pick up your you know, bloody phone the animal and, and there's a lot of joy in that there's a lot of social important social time that comes with those processes of butchering and putting the meat to, up to dry and everything and so you know it reinforces the the kinship and the and the you know and i think one of the sort of underlying themes of this book richie is just that mankind is inherently socialist 
you know, or syndicalist at least, you know, yeah. I mean, we're just not meant to compete. We're not meant to be put at each other's throats um, and compete. And that's all we do now. And they encourage it, of course. And, and um, it's really, this is what's destroying, you know, it is the snake eating its own tail. Let me, let me do a quick, let me do a quick summing up because time is flying and Jesus, yeah. we've got, we've probably got another 40, 45 minutes, but it's just going to disappear. So let me do a very quick summing up. Um, I'm recommend, recommending you pick up a copy of Royal Bloodline with Tico and The Great Remembering by Dean Henderson, not because he's my friend, but because it's really, really, really interesting. It's a great read. Right, even if you say, well, I'm not sure about this now, this is a bit far-fetched. Um, you might say that, you might not. In my case, I don't think it is far-fetched. You will be entertained. It's an excellent read, right? Now, um, eight and a half thousand years ago, the Sumerians, the Dean's uh, thesis, were visited by an interplanetary group or a, a, a group of um, a civilization from another world called the Anunnaki. And they basically took over changed the way we lived, the way people lived. And they spread out all over the world. And I'm going to butcher this synopsis now, but essentially they be, they became the, the royal families of the world that we know today. And throughout history, they've worked um, sometimes pretty hard, sometimes not too hard to keep this fact from people. You, you know, you, 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 people will have heard, of course, of the burning of um, temples and the burning of libraries, the Alexandra libraries, all these things that, that, that were done to keep this information from people. Um, right up to the present day, the descendants of the Anunnaki, Dean believes they exist, they are the royal families of the world. And here's the question, right, and reading the book, and I'm only a third of the way through it, do the royal families of the world today because I'm not sure they do, are they all aware of it? Of who they are? Or is that is that kind of, is there compartmentalization? Like, will the king know? I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting question too, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I, yeah. I suspect that, you know, any of the high levels uh, that are decision makers, they, they know. Um, I'm not sure all of them know, but I know uh, from what I understand of the power structure, it's, it's pretty much this bloodline crown that, you know, business-wise and geopolitics-wise is, is is in the city of London Corporation. Yeah. And in this country, it's represented by BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street Capital. And their money's offshore, mostly, because, you know, the Bank of England in the city of London facilitates the entire offshore banking trade. So guys like Soros make a living starting like the quantum NV fund, which he used to run anyway. And that was in Curacao and that was, yeah, it was money from all the monarchs. So that's why it's so hard to trace this stuff. And people have such a hard time believing that they can be this wealthy, but we do know definitely certain things like the, you know, the crown, the, you know, the your queen that just died, I guess. So King Charles now is the biggest landowner in the world. We know that, Yeah. you know, we know that, we know that King Charles said the words, you know, global reset at the World Economic Forum before anybody else did, including Klaus Schwab. But we never talk about it. We know that King Charles facilitated the Rio summit out of which Agenda 21, Agenda 30 came. And we don't even talk about it. He hosted it. He planned it. I mean, so there's so many things. And, oh, they don't have any power. <laughs> OK. Yeah. So, any power, so that's why he did a two week funeral for this biatch on my television. Two weeks, and, and the thing yeah. is, I, I ask my listeners sometimes, not often, but sometimes, to consider something. 
Nobody is allowed to enter Parliament. Nobody is allowed to make a speech unless they swear effectively a blood oath to the King and to all of his heirs. And when I've asked people, I, I do occasionally meet people on the streets that have heard of the show, not often. I wish, wish it was more often, not because I'm uh, conceited, but because I know that more people were listening. But sometimes people say, ah, oh, Richie, it's a load of crap. And I say to them, listen, why do you think your members of Parliament don't swear an oath to you? Why don't they swear an oath to serve? An oath by God to serve the people of their constituency. Why do they swear an oath to him and to all of his heirs? Why do they need to go and ask him permission to dissolve Parliament? Why did Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland have to write a letter of re resignation to him in London when she resigned from the Scottish National Party? And people look at me with glassy eyes, Dean. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's right, again, it's right there in front of them. Yeah. They've been so conditioned not to see it because all of the science, all of the religion, all of the pop culture comes from the crown. And half of their job is to conceal their power and half of their job is to manipulate you into working for their corporations, which they own all of, because we know that BlackRock and Vanguard in the United States own are the top three shareholders, um, actually top two shareholders in every Fortune 500 corporation. We know that. Which is amazing. And they're managing, and BlackRock is managing their money and their interests on behalf of them. Money. And that's what, yeah, the Biden administration is more BlackRock centric. I mean, it's just loaded. You know, it always used to be Goldman Sachs would load up the administration, especially the Treasury Department. Well, now it's BlackRock. And this Wally Adamayo, he's the, the guy, this African dude, you know, but he's from BlackRock. And a lot of them are from BlackRock. Larry Fink, sir, for a while, he's from BlackRock. Um, so now, yeah, so they wield great economic power, own everything, really own everything. It's no, it's really no overstatement that they own everything. And then they control the political power too, of course. And, but as I understand it, back to your question about do they know, these, you know, there's supposedly this, there's a bloodline crown. Underneath that, there's supposedly a council of 33 and a committee of 300, which John Coleman writes about in his, you know, excellent book, uh, Conspirators Hierarchy, the Committee of 300. And Coleman was a British intelligence agent, right? And um, so all of those, all those levels there, all, all the way down through the Committee of 300. And I, I actually had a list of the 2016 membership of the Committee of 300. And it is, it's all marquees or, or lords or dukes or, I mean, it's all viscounts, you know, royal people. So you have to be bloodline to be at this level, at, at this, those top three levels is what I understand. So I'm assuming that at least those 300 people know. They will know what's going on and where yeah, they came from. they know their history of their, yeah, why they're doing what they're doing. So here's another uh, question, Dean, on that. If the royal families of the world are essentially the descendants of Anunnaki, is the British royal family then, I know this is going to be a stupid question because you've kind of answered it because of the Crown Corporation City of London, but is, if we want to look at it, like if we take, um, if we take um, your man's book, your man who wrote The Godfather, the book, if we look at it from the Godfather point of view, the the analogy, is the British royal family then like the Corleones, basically? Are they the number one? They're, de they're the public uh, number one. I'm not sure that uh, there's the Habsburgs and the Bourbons aren't just as powerful, maybe more powerful behind the scenes. But I think the, the, the significance is really, you know, when William the Conqueror came over from Normandy and 
there had been this sort of uh, eugenics thing going on in Normandy in the 14th, 15th century, where the Venetian bankers and the Roman Empire, you know, the black nobility from the Holy Roman Empire, you know, which were nobility now, black nobility, which means they're not officially titled anymore. And and then the nobility of the, say, the Norwegian Rollo bloodline showed up, you know, the Habsburgs, the Bourbons, the Anjus, the Plantagenets, um, as well as all the, the, the Medicis and a lot of these Venetian bankers, because if you look at Normandy, it's pretty close to both. And there was this huge thing where, I don't know, the bloodlines sort of reinforced or interbred more. And so out of that, William the Conqueror, that's where he came from Normandy and into England. And that was that was the time, you know, when when it seemed like, you know, the bloodline really made its move on London. And and that from there you have, you know, later on, William the Third was who sort of invited the. So what happened was the Templars money was confiscated some of it, but most of it got away. And the Templars were burned at the stake, some of their guys, Doc, Jacques de Malay and others, for necromancy and Satanism and all kinds of things, which I'm sure were true. Because you have to remember, the, the Templars didn't ever work for the Catholic Church. They worked for the bloodline. They worked for King Baldwin was their first boss. Okay, And, and they King Baldwin lived in the Temple Mount, which was not built by Freemasons, and Templars, who are, you know, they claim to be these great builders and building societies. It actually was confiscated. The Al, it was the Al-Aqsa Mosque confiscated from the Muslims who built it. And so they, they moved in there. King Baldwin moved in there, and the Knights Templar moved into the west wing of that complex. Um, so that's their start. It has nothing to do, despite the propagandist efforts, it's not a Catholic order, okay? It's a bloodline order that happened to come in contact with some popes and some, you know, papacy and the Vatican Bank, of course, because that was also taken over at that time, and um, to some extent, I'm sure still is. So, anyway, then they, William the Third came into England and the city of London, and he's the one that kind of, well, first of all, I should I should go back a step. In about the 15th century, you know, London had been called Londinium, it was established in 47 AD. Okay, Alfred the Great renamed it Lundenburg, and um. But it wasn't until the 15th century when the shipbuilding took off. And the Templars definitely had the first ship. So they were the ones going around for the crown because that's who they worked for, the bloodline crown. And looting the entire world, stealing all the gems and jewels and riches of every tribe everywhere they could and bringing it back to the Holy Roman Empire. So the loot that when they, when the Templars fled from this Catholic uh, you know, persecution, along with King Philip of France was part of that because apparently he owed the Templars money. They took most of their loot to Scotland. So then when William III came in, he got help from the Sinclair family. And they moved, that's when they kind of moved the all that loot into the city of London. And the shipbuilding was established on the Thames in about the 15th century. And that's when the city of London really became powerful. And they had already signed the, the Magna Carta on Lombard Street, which is named after the Lombard family, right? The Venetians. And um, and so that's when the, the royal societies really took off was with the Freemason money, which is interesting because, but like I say, before that, they hid behind the Catholics and they had the fallen out. Then they funded Martin Luther, mostly from their Venetian banker position, but also through the Hanseatic League and the Levant Company. And then they moved up and the Dutch East India Company was founded and and, the, and, and it all became about shipbuilding at that point. So um, so William III was very instrumental in, um, in getting that all going but the Magna Carta I mean 
it really it states clearly that you know the one thing that it states and it's a quote it says quote the city of london shall have slash enjoy its ancient liberties so that's really all you need to know <laughs> yeah and um you know you can say okay it's less of a monarchy now it included the barons and the whatever but there's still a pecking order within that and again the most interesting thing is there's just there's no uh there's no records as to when the city of london corporation was chartered but if you know that's that's pretty much to me the key as far as global power is the city of london corporation i don't know which family has the pecking order there if it's the habsburg i suspect it's the habsburgs because um they have more kings. I mean, the Habsburgs are kings of what? How oh, a lot of countries. I, I don't even know. I know Belgium. I know there's a lot of countries where the Habsburgs are still, you know, are still very prominent. You know, I, I I was pointed by listeners tonight to a famous photograph of a Rothschild banker. I don't know if it's Jacob Rothschild. I could be wrong. He seems to be poking the heir to the throne as he was then, Prince yeah. Charles, in the chest. Now, however. I don't know any of this to be what I'm, what I'm about to say, if it's true. But people have said to me over the years, they think that that might be a bit of misinformation, that the photograph itself might have been staged or created. What do you think? Interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of tend to think that's probably true. You yeah. seem to play that one a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, especially when people are going off on the, I don't know, just disinformation. Like, for example, the Jesuits, that's just disinformation. The Jesuits are the only decent part of the Catholic Church, really. I mean, they, they were behind liberation theology. Um, they've been behind major reforms in, in the Catholic Church that say, you know, we're, like in Latin America, the Bogota, uh, what was it, Vatican I or Vatican II, was it? Anyway, they declared they were going to be on the side of the peasants and the working class in Latin America instead of the aristocracy, and that really pissed off the CIA and the bloodline. So... You know, they've been going after the Catholics for quite a while um, because there's some interesting things going on. And so it's not the Jesuits at all. It's the Knights of Malta. That's their foothold in the Catholic Church. And, you know, apparently uh, King Charles is ahead of that. And um, the Bourbons are very active in that, which is, you know, the Spaniards. And that's probably the father of King of Prince William is, is uh, King Juan Carlos of the Bourbon family this because you know, there's books about it, right? There are, yeah, yeah. It's, it's It came up many years ago. And of course, the other guy, the guy who's out in the cold now in the United States, allegedly out in the cold with with the actress Meghan Markle, he's, um, yeah, his his dad is alleged to have been somebody else as well. I want to I wanna give, to mention the name of the book again, and I want to bring it then in the time we have left into today where we're going, because it feels to me, and this is just a feeling, this is an energetic feeling that... We're in the, if I say end game, I'll, I'll slap myself for using cliches. We're, we're, we're coming to the very end of something. And I want to get your take on what might be the end. Dean Henderson is our guest. We're talking about Royal Bloodline with Tico and the Great Remembering. All of what Dean has been talking about, um, Dean believes, and it's the thesis, the central theory of the book, this has been kept from people. And great lengths are gone to to keep this information from people, to keep people from understanding it. The Anunnaki bloodline, where it came from, when it arrived in Samaria, why, what happened after that. The fact that the royal families of the world are connected, they're interconnected by bloodline, and they are basically controlling global events. And we're in this thing now. We've had this horrible three years, 
it had a terrible energetic impact on the world, didn't it, Dean? I, I think people, I've never seen people so harried. I've never seen people so morose and so down. We know what it's done to children. We know what it's done to people psychologically. And now they're talking about, um, you know, drastically changing the way we live because we need to be protected from climate change. So it feels to me that if this is a battle between these bloodlines and between us, the rest of us, the people who maybe inhabited this planet, maybe, you know, before anybody else did, if the, if this is the culmination of that battle, I think we're nearly at the end of it. Am I right or wrong, or is it just anybody's guess? No, I think it's coming to a head for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's all just, I mean, you talk about the World Health Organization taking over, you know, for you know, replacing the decisions of sovereign governments as far as health. Well, so, you know, Jeremy Farrar um, of the Wellcome Trust, yeah. which is the biggest medical charity in the world, and it's the Crown's charity. And um, he was instrumental in suppressing the Wuhan, Wuhan uh, lab leak theory, um, which has been, to me, proven by Robert F. Kennedy's book um, and others that it is a definite lab leak that probably what I think is they brought it just like the Chinese defense ministry said about a week after this broke this outbreak, they asked him uh, what, you know, what happened. And they said the U S military brought this to our country. And so it was DARPA and it was Jeremy Farrar's welcome trust. And it was, uh, the eco health Alliance that they were funding gain of function research. Why? Because it's cheaper to do in China. It's just that simple. It's the same reason they make, you know, doilies in China and not here. And we kicked them out. They can't do it here. They can't do gain of function research in the US. So they're doing it in Ukraine and they're doing it in China and whatever. So, you know, I think they brought it with the world military games, which happened right at the same time. And that's a competition between the world's military, um, militaries as athletes, you know, but that's also when China broke out, you know, took out the 5G. Don't roll the 5G at the World Military Games. That's where it happened. And so Farrar and the, the Crown, you know, the Crown um, through DARPA, our military, but they control our military and they have for a long time. And that's all in the book, too, how the Empire Press Union became the MI6, MI5, became the, you know, the uh, the CIA. And, yeah. and the CIA is a British-controlled Crown organization. And it's just, there's a timeline. So, um so anyway, yeah, they work for the bad guys and um, they want to kill us. And, it, you know, the, the amazing thing to me, Richie, is just how we backed them off of the complete total lockdown scenario. And I think that can't be underestimated. And that has to be seen as part of this great remembering, you know, that was, that's not totally lost yet. I mean, the Canadian truckers sort of. Maybe kick that off. I don't know. We did a lot in the U.S. We we stood up. A lot of people. My governor stood up. A lot of people stood up. Yeah. Um. And that's significant, right? Yeah. So I what do they do? So. They just go right back to a war footing with Ukraine because they got to fall back on the military-industrial complex. But I think the bigger story there, Richie, is that their 5G uh, fourth industrial revolution has failed because that they. You know, all, Tesla's cars, I mean, they're just running into ambulances on the highway. They've recalled every single model of Tesla car now. Um, none of A lot of it's just not working. You know, they just they weren't smart enough to get this electromagnetic uh, economy going before they pulled the plug on oil. And um, 
so it's just not working. So that's that's positive. Those two things are positive. But of course, the negative is yeah. On the other side, you know, these you know, it's it's all being fomented by the city, this Ukrainian conflict. It just helps, you know, it helps uh, it helps the, the royalty, it helps the the bloodline when you have a divided Russia against America, and they've used the same shtick for you know forever, and they don't like Putin. I I, I mean. I don't know, you know, I, I know there's people that think he's a stooge, but I don't, you know, if you know your history, if you know your history about Russia and, and how he's handled it ever since he took power, you know, I think you'd think different. You know, they don't like this guy. They never have. They sort of got along to get along for a while, but they never liked this guy because you know why? Because he's a real leftist. And that's what's amazing is that somehow they've got the Democrat Party in this country are supposed to be leftists or whatever. they hating this guy, you know? Yeah. And... It's amazing, but this is all the mind control, and they did it with Trump. They're doing it again. Trump, Trump, Trump. There he is again in the news. Oh, imagine that. And they'll probably bring him back because he's great for dividing people. Of course he is. Um, and we're definitely reaching ahead because, yeah, there's people that want this. They don't necessarily want World War Three. They just want a prolonged uh, war of attrition, I think, that they can make a lot of money selling arms. And now you got the China situation. Um, so it's coming to a head. I mean, anybody that's got a pulse has to be able to see that Times are pretty serious. I mean, when you come out of a three-year, you know, fake, well, just a pandemic that's just designed to kill people and then kill more people with the vaccinations, and then then you go straight into this, you know, unchanged, unchanged behaviors, unchanged behaviors, unchanged behaviors a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, and people just become inhuman antennas. In my opinion, is a big part of why they had to vaccinate all these people was because they needed they needed the signal. Because the uh, 5G millimeter length, uh, it's really short wave. So you got to have transmitters everywhere. And they thought, well, if we do that, then people will rise up. So we can't be so obvious. So we'll just give these people a vaccination. They'll become antennas. For real, that's what I think. I still think that. And I think they also combined something in Wuhan with, with the 5G with the virus when they were creating it. Or, you know, when they were doctoring with it at Wuhan, they used some, somehow they used 5G to enhance it, spread it. Could it be that they're that they're sim- stimulating some parasite that we all have in our bodies to attack certain organs? Interesting that ivermectin works because anti ivermectin is an anti-parasitic. Yeah, that's right. Right. So that's just interesting. So I don't know what it is. Nobody, you know, we don't know what it is, but we just know that. And I think China also knows that they were attacked. And there's probably bad guys in that government, but there's probably some also some people who really are sick of the U.S. Uh, attacking them. And, um, it sounds to me, just, Dean. It sounds to me like, um, I mean, th- th- there isn't any reason not to appreciate RFK Jr. Um, I'm very familiar with his father's story. I've read the Kennedy biographies by everybody. Must have read, he's running for president, Richie. Th- th- that's why I'm bringing him up. Yeah, this, yeah, is, why, this is why I'm bringing it up. So, so he's announced to run at the presidency. So, I look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and I've looked at him over the last three years. And I think there's a guy who's put some really important information in the public domain. He's talked about the madness. Even before COVID, he talked about the madness of vaccinating children against things that children 
don't need to be vaccinated against. So so I've always kind of liked him. I hear he's running for president then. I'm not a Debbie Downer, but I have to say this. He's not got a cat's chance in hell. What do you think he's doing it for? Do you think he's doing it because he thinks, well, I'll get a bit more publicity, and if I get a bit more publicity, I'll be able to um, have that platform to, you know, to, to warn people about some of these things. What do you think his motivation is, do you think? Yeah, I mean, hard hard to say, but I think it's more the latter. He just wants to get the information out, yeah, and he sees it as an opportunity, and it is. It's yeah, they'll they'll try to ignore him and they'll try to, you know, all that. But uh, but what's great about it is he's a Democrat, you know, and he's and if we're ever gonna get out of this mess, the Democrats have to find their heads again. And you could probably say the same about labor in your country. I mean, they got to pull their heads out of their asses, right? And they were the, they were the ones that fell for this whole Pfizer, you know, trick of the light and just went for it. And I, unbelievable. And they're the ones that fell for the for the war scenario now. They, they remember Iraq. You don't remember Iraq when the yeah. Republicans were, you know, spitting on us as we protested in the streets. Now it's the Democrats doing that kind of stuff. Oh, they're, so push, they're pushing the climate change. Yeah, they're pushing the climate change agenda. They're pushing labor are all for yeah, let's get every car off the road. Let's get people... Out of airplanes, don't eat any meat, don't do any. They're they're worse than the so-called right of center party in this yeah. country. Yeah, of yeah, course, of course they are. They're for illegal immigration and it's unlimited. And I mean, it was Cesar Chavez of the United Farm Workers who coined the term wetback because he didn't want illegal Mexicans coming into California taking jobs from his, you know, legally, you know his people that were legal that were yeah, u.s citizens but citizens, that were mexican yeah. and he was a progressive right and he was against uh, you know this immigration so i don't know what's happened i mean i, I know what's happened I, I know they've been tricked and i know trump was used to do it because trump just set them nuts i mean it makes them nuts and they don't think straight and they, they they knew that and so they'll probably will bring him back again but i don't know um it's really that's the most disturbing part of this whole thing that's unfolded to me is just how many liberals and progressives have have taken the bait. But I, I got to tell you, honestly, mostly, you know, they portray them. Of course, Fox News says it's this the, the radical left, but it's actually just the opposite. It's actually what I've noticed, observed is that it's kind of these middle of the road Democrats who never they really would never show up for a union protest or, you know, they, they would. I don't know. They're just they play it safe. They listen to NPR. You know, they really don't do shit to change things, but they they, they wear all the right colors and they say all the right things. And that's that's who this really is. So yeah. I, I, I would it would, the real left is what has to come back. And and if we have any chance and they know that and that's why there's a war on the on the left to make them look hideous, which is what they're doing to the liberals. Now they're making them look hideous and then they're conflating them with us, the real radical left. And it, so then they, they know, I mean, that throughout history, that's been the real enemy. Right. I mean, if you you can be a right winger and as long as you're pro capitalist and. You think, you know, we're supposed to privatize everything and and whatever. They're not a threat to these people. You know, you only a threat to these people when you talk about nationalizing their Federal Reserve cartel or nationalizing their oil companies yes. or nationalizing their grain companies. The water. Or breaking yes. up their cartels, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And that's what it's about. But, yeah. you know, and, and guys like, you know, they're still in the, in the world. I mean, look at Burkina Faso. They just out, you know, threw out the French. Um, so did Mali. They're still... Uh, exists in this world a lot of radical left marxist uh whatever you want to call them movements but you never know it um by watching 
you know, the TV and the developed world because it's all just junk and it's just like basically fascists and which are now the Democrats and then fascist light, which is the Republicans. You, it's you, <laughs> it's, you know as well as I do that if you ask the average person on the street to tell you about Hugo Chavez, they tell you he was a madman and they, they would tell you that his policies were so crazy that he drove inflation up in Venezuela and prices went through the roof and he destroyed his own country. Of course, this is horse shit. That's not yeah. what happened at all. What happened is they do what they always do. They fix the markets. They tell countries you can't buy from Venezuela. They sanction the country because he shows what can happen. This is how we can live. We can use our resources. We can take them away from BP and from Shell and from Exxon. We'll sell our resources and we will bring everybody up. And we will drop taxes. We won't tax rich people. We won't destroy them with taxes. Rich people can be rich people if they want to be. But we'll have good schools. We'll have great housing. We'll have education, but real education, not woke education. And we'll do really well. And, of course, Venezuela does really well. And the, the let's call them what they are, the bloodlines say... Now, we can't have that. So we will destroy the countries that trade with Venezuela and we will force your country into a, into a cycle of inflation that makes things um, pretty much unbearable. We will try to turn your own people against you. That's exactly what happens, right? Yeah, it's exactly what happens. Lots and then they allow, who do they allow to cross the Mexican-US border? Well, it's Venezuelans, yeah. Cubans, and Nicaraguans. Yeah. Yeah. That's, who they, that's who they're letting through. And imagine you know, why they're doing that. Well, because those three countries... Um, they stood up against the U.S. imperialism and the, and the bloodline. And Ortega, you know, got tossed out. Well, now he's back in Nicaragua. And Chavez's idea of the Bank of the South, yeah. it's back. You know, it's it's progressing again now that Lula's back in power in Brazil. And now that uh, you have to remember, Evo Morales, you know, uh, they won that battle. They threw that right-wing bitch in jail yeah. that overthrew him and sent him back. And so they're back in power. So... Things are, you know, like I said, it's not, it's not a slam dunk for these people. Now, now you got Saudi, uh, you know, uh, signed a peace deal with Iran, you know, with uh, Chinese, uh, you know, and Russian help, and all, now Syria, and you know, so Saudi Arabia has flown the coop. I mean, they're not allied with us apparently anymore. No, but they're they've been, so, but, but they've been bombing Yemeni men, women, and children into the Stone Age. Um, yeah, I don't want them. They can yeah. go forever, but we should have kicked them out. But now instead, we've you know, instead of, you know, diminishing their power at some point throughout this, yeah, this hideous, again, crown bloodline behavior. Because, like, yeah, I remember the Saudi Fowd family is part of the crown. The Al-Sabahs are part of the crown. They're part of the crown. And instead of cracking down and, and curtailing their power, we've let them buy Citibank and Credit Suisse and and probably as a gold parachute because we knew it was going to collapse in the case of the latter. But but we've we've enhanced their power. And now we've just handed, you know, we've basically handed all this oil to the Russians and the Chinese. So this is this is kind of it. Kind of we are at kind of a moment. I feel like we're the the snake's eating its tail, Richie, and you, you know there's there's going to be a lot of really dumb things that happen. That might, and, um, yeah, they, yeah, it's going to be dangerous uh, because they're so dumb. It really comes down to they're so dumb. They still have this Witiko mindset, like we have to bomb the Russians before they bomb us. You know, we always have to strike out before giving diplomacy or peace a chance. I mean, this country that I live in right now, it's pretty sick, man. And there's a lot of people operating under that paradigm, this might is right paradigm, which is also a crown concoction because I grew up on a farm. I've hunted my whole life, trapped even. I did. I traveled uh, all over the world, been on safaris, observed wild animals just as much as anyone my age. And 
And I can tell you they cooperate all the time and they hardly ever fight. You'd have to sit for days to get a lion fight in Kenya. And that's what they do. The photographers for National Geographic, which is the Geographic Society, which is the Royal Society, which is part of the Bloodlines propaganda. So that's just one example. But we could do a show on that. Hold, hold that thought for a minute. Um, you, you mentioned, just, just, let me just do this. Uh, it's uh, Dean Henderson on the line, by the way. To read more about this, Royal Bloodline Wetiko and the Great Remembering. You'll find it on Amazon. Um, if, if, before we do go in a few minutes, if there's somewhere else you want to mention where people can go and buy it, um, do mention that. But uh, Dean Henderson, the author, the broadcaster, he's been on the line with us since around about half five. Huge interest in this, right? And and the reason I've just jumped in there is because I, I better ask a couple of quick questions listeners have, have sent in. Um, William asks if the burning of the Templars' temples may have been deliberately done to destroy evidence and to destroy history and he also asks would you would you put to dean what his thoughts are or were on the waco massacre so first question were the templars temples born to destroy evidence um i'm not sure which templar temple you're he's referring to there um me neither to be honest but it's, obviously it's we have me. you know the temple mount still exists and the al and yeah it, of course we had israeli soldiers in there just beaten up and shooting at Palestinians yesterday in the inside of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which isn't good, um, but isn't, you know, it's predictable. Um, so that that's another thing that's going on. It's going to blow. Um, but yeah, and the other, the other question was what now, Richie? Because I, I don't know. So I did, mean, I, they probably what, did. I mean, I'm sure it happens. So yeah, they're always looking to, they're always looking to cover their tracks. One thing I should say on that is just, you know, they change their names a lot. Um, just like they change the names of their corporations, you know, like, they changed, you know, Exxon used to be separate and Mobile was separate, right? And then before that, there was other companies that those two swallowed up. Well, then Exxon and merged with Mobile and became Exxon Mobile. Well, then they dropped Mobile. So now it's just Exxon. So people forget, see, that Ex that Mobile is part of that, but they're that big and that powerful. Well, they do the same with their names and their histories. And I mean, yeah, of course, I mean, the library is just full of junk books that are funded by the bloodline that they promote just sleazy stuff that doesn't matter or or stuff that you know darkens the view of human nature they love that um tv the same um so they're always covering their tracks so it's possible but um the other question was what now about all oh, about how about, about waco well, yeah. netflix is running a documentary at the moment about about waco i gave up after 15 minutes because it's unsurprisingly just propaganda and it's taking it from the point of view of the the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the FBI. So for listeners who, if, you're, if you've lived on planet Zog for the last 30 years, back in um, 1993, David Koresh led a, a group of people who lived on a compound. They were known as Branch Davidians. He was somebody who was very, very much um, a, a student of the Bible. He was big into the Bible and uh, he was a bit of a preacher type and a lot of people followed him and they had their own community there. Um, they, they were raided by the ATF and the FBI. It was claimed that they were stockpiling guns and selling guns. And what we, what we know for a fact is is that the compound was burned down by the ATF and the FBI. 
um, they shot first, they burned those people to death in there. Whatever anybody thinks about David Koresh, because some people think he was having sex with children in there. I don't think that's ever been proven. I don't know. But it was a horrendous thing, energetically. David Icke once said to me, energetically, it would have they would have loved this. These um, bloodlines would have loved this, energetically. You know, for children to be burned alive by, sure. by the state, by the apparatus of the state these days. What did you make of all of that? And is that relevant still today, what what happened at Waco? Well, one, one thing I think about that that is significant is it was under the Clinton administration, right? And Clinton's right. were the beginning of the end of any kind of semblance of a Democratic Party that was liberal or progressive, right? Their whole thing was triangulation, right? So they had to appeal to the centrists, you know, everywhere. And they did. And so, they, I mean... Bill Clinton, man, he cut welfare benefits to people big time. He cut education funding. He, you know, he let he allowed the Glass-Steagall Act to be repealed. You know, he pushed through NAFTA, right? So, I mean, yeah, it was that's and 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 he did things like Waco, which for the first time we saw the, yeah, I think first time in my life anyway. I mean, there wasn't much to go on before that, I suppose, Jimmy Carter, but I'd never seen a Democratic president go after uh, people like that and just kill them. And I don't care what they believed or who they are. It was wrong in it. And, you know, it was kind of the beginning of the end of any kind. And then he gets into Yugoslavia, of course, and Iraq, and he did so many just evil things, Bill Clinton, yeah. and was the start of the end of progressivism in U.S. politics. Now, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe a Kennedy can get that back for us. One thing I like about him running as he is a Kennedy. And, um, he will know, happen. though. Hang on. He will know what they did to his father and what they did to his that's, uncle. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Will he talk about that, maybe? <laughs> so I hope so, because I know that whole Sirhan Sirhan thing was a crock, too, and there's a lot behind that. He was, a, Manchu- he was a Manchurian candidate, was he? Or did, yeah, he even, did he even fire the shots? Yeah, right. I think it was some kind of MK Ultra involved, for sure, because that's right when they were experimenting with that stuff in San Francisco. And so that's where he was shot, so... Or was it LA? It was somewhere out there. Am I, am I am I naive when I say that? I might be naive. Did they kill Bobby Kennedy because he was genuinely going to be of the people and for the people? Or he was going to do his yeah. damnedest? Is that why they killed him? I think so. I mean, he wasn't perfect. He was still an elitist, you know. And yeah. They got a lot of money in the Kennedys. But yeah, I mean, I still, you know, I, I think that's why they killed both the Kennedys. And and I'm worried they might try to kill another one here if he gains any traction because, you know, um, all I know is the guy had a good upbringing, right? I mean, for him to be this brave in the face of the establishment Democrats just going nuts, right? And and he's been brave, you know. As have people like Matt Taibbi and, and Glenn Greenwald and Tulsi Gabbard and a lot of people, you and I, but not enough. But um, maybe he can at least... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just I was just hoping they would run some somebody. You know, I, I didn't even vote last time for president. Why? Well, how could you? Look, at the, look at the choice you had. <laughs> I mean, it's just a senile old man and an egomaniac. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I hate that feeling too of not voting. And uh, I like to have somebody at least to vote for, even if they don't, you know, have a chance of winning at least in the primary. But, but um, but yeah. These are sometimes. Let me. I, I'm. I'm. We'll. We'll. we'll We'll part company in a moment, which will give me a couple of minutes to read some comments because lots of really positive comments, really interesting comments. Dean's book is Royal Bloodline with Tico, 
and The Great Remembering. You can buy a paperback, you can get the Kindle edition of it if you want, um, but do give it a, a read. It's it's really, really interesting. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's uh, like I said earlier on, even if you think it's, um, you know, it's it's hard to take, and you might do. I, I, I used to think that. It, it It's... Uh, it's also packed with facts and with references, which you can check yourself, which I always love that because, you know, it, um, it, it rings through to me then that this is, this is real, this is sincere, these things did happen and, and are still happening now. Royal Bloodline with Tico and the great remembering Dean Henderson. Dean, should people use, look, we have to, it's terrible to have to use Amazon, but we do, we don't have any choice. Avenues are closed off everywhere else. Or is there some place else, is there a website you'd like to send people to? I mean, you can get it like at Barnes and Noble, I guess, but it's still a corporate chain. And, you know, honestly, um, again, I get I get like a, a way better royalty at Amazon than I would if I if I could find a publisher. So I just and you can't because nobody's going to publish these books. And then oh. you get like 10 percent royalty. Well, I get like 30 percent royalty this way on the print and like I think it's 70 or 60 percent or something on the ebooks. So I, I, I just look at it like it's a jiu-jitsu on Amazon. And it's, it works for me, and they've they've had to pay me a lot of money over the years. Amazon has, which tickles me a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a lesson, too. Like nice irony. Yeah. Correct stuff and just go get a book at Amazon, man. Forget about it because it helps me the most. And if you really want to help me, the writer, get it there. And then I don't care if you help me too much. I just want you to read it. I just want folks to read it. I think it's important. Um, passing on. One of the things I should say is, you know, get one for your local library. I hate even having have people buy it. You know, make your library buy it, and then like a hundred people in your community can read it. I so love you're that. amplifying the effect of that information. I love it. Yeah, if you do buy it and read it, give it to your library. Pass if, it on, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I love it, Dean. Listen, do do us a favor. Give them Jill our regards. It's lovely to catch up with you. It's been too long. You don't have to. Uh, Wait so long. To, I know you're busy to come back. Come back anytime just to chat about the issues because our listeners love hearing from you, pal. Um, we've been speaking for many years and I hope that we'll be speaking for many years to come, but that most of those years we'll be talking about benign things and banal things because enough people will have stood up to it, like the French are doing in, in Paris and Toulouse and like the Israelis have been doing on the streets of Jerusalem. So hopefully our conversations in the future will be about, I don't know, building things like sheds and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hopefully I can hopefully I can just be in Fez in a few years and we can just kick back on the beach and oh, yeah. watch the like... goat herders and drink a beer and it will all be fixed. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Well, that would be something else, buddy. Thanks for your time today. Congratulations so on the book. And uh, don't be a stranger. Speak soon, Dean. All right, take care. Dean Anderson, folks. Amazing guy. Speaking to... Uh, me on shows since around about 2011. You won't find a more sincere guy, you won't find a brighter guy really, anywhere in the independent media. The book is called Royal Bloodline with Tico and The Great Remembering. You can get the Kindle of it on Amazon and Dean said he'll he'll do much better if you get the, the non-print version of it. But do buy the paperback and do uh, share it with your library. Your library might just stock it. They might just put it on uh, the shelf for you. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. The time is coming up for 11 minutes to the top of the hour. I am Richie Allen, the BBG. Um, by the way, you might expect me not to be on air next Monday because it's Easter Monday bank holiday, but I will be on. I will be on. I'll be on around about lunchtime for a kind of a news review show 
just a special show on Bank Holiday Monday. I will, of course, be on air on Easter Sunday morning with Sunday morning melodies. So everything is normal. The only thing that isn't normal, which is a bonus really, is I will be on air on Bank Holiday Monday. That's this coming Monday, around about lunchtime, before I go off and get sozzled, you know. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. To all the listeners who have become loyal customers of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last year, we would like to say a big thank you. Because of your continued support, we have been able to introduce our second product. This unique supplement is formulated specifically to reduce pain caused by joint inflammation. Our organic turmeric-based supplement contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract which massively increases its bioavailability and thereby reaching the inflammation area faster. If you are suffering from joint pain, go to NutraHealth365.com for specific details on how our joint health supplement can help give you relief. That's NutraHealth365.com with free tracked delivery. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Can I just say that Eamon Blaney, the man behind NutraHealth365.com and Immunex365.com, is a great chap, a great lad, Irish guy in business, and is really, it's not just this programme, he's a great supporter of the independent media, and that really means a lot to me. So while I never endorse anything or tell you anything works or doesn't work or you should or shouldn't use it, what I can tell you is if you are looking at supplements, um, do do have a look at Eamon, NutraHealth365.com. There is, um, what do you call it? There is a link to it on the homepage of RichieAllen.co.uk. Um, I like to work with people who support the independent media because, let's face it, like they're not queuing up to advertise with us, are they really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're not queuing up to advertise with us. So, uh, good, good luck to Eamon Blaney, NutraHealth three six five dot com, isn't it, or is it dot co dot uk? I'm an idiot, me. It's NutraHealth365.co.uk or Immunex365.co.uk. Like I said, the meme is on the homepage of RichieAllen.co.uk. Bit of a plonker there, wasn't I? Yeah, but sure, that's not nothing new anyway. Uh, Chris says, Dean was brilliant, Richie. Always look forward to him coming on. Thanks, Chris. Nelly says, Harry and Diana, outcasts and why? A strange one, really. Harry strikes you as a bit of a narcissist. That might be down to his upbringing, which had to be bizarre, you know, regardless of who these people are. You know, I I found the Queen detestable and ugly and ominous. I found looking at the Queen when she would appear on television or give a speech, I found her ominous. Horrible feel about, not just her, but royal families in general. It's the Irish Republican in me, maybe. But I agree with Dean, even though I don't have that research to back me up. And this is pure supposition. But I believe that these families are in charge. Maybe the British royal family isn't the overarching power or the the big power in the cabal. But these families have been running things for millennia. I really do believe that. They invented democracy. The UK is a constitutional monarchy. You in the UK are supposed to believe that 
you get to go and vote for your local MP and then you've got a bit of power because you've put them in charge. But, but no, they're answering to the Crown, to the Crown Corporation. And that's how I see it. I know people listening to the programme, they see it differently. And I totally respect that. That's why we like each other. We can have conversations and put these theories out there and not get too upset when we don't see things the same way. Chris Morell says he will play the podcast to his tame goddess, Oana, I can't pronounce this, uh, Geramisavici, as I think she speaks to me about what Dean was describing. Who's Oana Gerasimovici? But thanks for giving her a mention, Chris. Um, Faisal says there's an interesting connection between the Branch Davidians and the Franciscan Order who built the Sistine Chapel and are all over the Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem and also graveyards on Temple Mount. Very interesting. Backbeat says, um, Dean seems switched on, but whenever someone mentions bloodlines, etc., and then mentions the left and the right of politics, a.k.a. the dog and pony show, I don't understand how this chap can see one side of the argument and not see the other for the farce that it is, says Backbeat. Thanks for that. Uh, Tom says, Meanwhile, in France, protesters target BlackRock. Uh, hi to Patricia Brownsfather. Hi, Patricia. She says, Go France. Really interesting what's happening in France. It's especially interesting to me that the UK media in particular is giving it such an amount, such, a, you know, a, a, a large, dedicating large amounts of time to it, which fascinates me. You know, Diane was very interested in Dean talking about parasites in the vaccines. It makes sense to me, says Diane. Uh, Patricia did say, if anything, the last three years has totally awakened most people to the fact that psychopaths are trying their best to control us. Now we need to take our power back and not let that happen. That is um, pretty much how I see it. There must be an opportunity in all of this, in all of what's happening. Let, let, let me just uh, remind you. Um, Sunday, 10 o'clock UK time Sunday morning melodies it is pretty much apolitical I will look at the Sunday morning newspapers but it's largely two hours of music and stories with me and you and it's lovely and interactive so you can you can chat with me via live chat on the website it's um, a programme I really look forward to every week kind of wish I don't wish the week away but once we get to Thursday I start thinking about the melodies and think oh I can't wait for the melodies so that's Sunday at 10 I am going to be on air on Bank Holiday Monday, something I've never done before. In the eight plus years of the Richie Allen Show, in its current existence, I've never worked a Bank Holiday, but I will be on air on Bank Holiday Monday, probably for an hour around lunchtime, maybe an hour and a half. So look out for that. I'll tell you more about that as the time draws near. In the meantime, once again, thank you to my friend Dean Henderson. Do pick up a copy of Royal Bloodline with Tico and The Great Remembering You'll find it on Amazon. He said Barnes and Noble too. That's it for me. Look after yourselves and one another. Have a fantastic weekend. And I hope to speak to you on Sunday morning at 10. Bye.